Welcome to the Rest and Recovery Podcast. This is a podcast on life's most effective healing tools, rest and recovery, through expert advice, wellness methods, and self-care. Okay, well, well, welcome to another episode of the Rest and Recovery Podcast. With me today is Mohit Kumar. He is the founder and CEO of Ultra Human. It is a company creating a powerful metabolic health and fitness ecosystem, uh, which includes building a large community of biohackers, athletes, and people who love fitness, much like most of us who are listening. So, uh, and you're based out of Bangalore, India, as I understand it. Is that right? That's correct. We are based out of Bangalore and Abu Dhabi. In the UAE, so we have two offices. Great. Um, well, thanks, Mohit, for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Scott. Such a pleasure to be here. Um, so we were kind of talking offline, um, ultra human, as I learned a bit about you guys uh, and what you're doing. But tell us a little bit about the mission of ultra human and uh, I guess uh, the origination story, like how you guys got started down this path. Absolutely. So the origination story starts around two and a half years ago. Um, and um, so what, what happened was that I started training at a, at a martial arts camp uh, called Tiger Muay Thai. Um, and I, I've been into uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a long, long time. And uh, uh, I wanted to sort of like train more semi-professionally to professionally in, in that phase of my life two and a half years ago. And uh, when I started training, like, it's somewhere around, uh, you can say, end of 2019, I realized that a lot of athletes have started using biomarkers to understand more about their body and right. to create very, very customized protocol and protocols for themselves. And these were not people who are looking for fitness, but these were people who are essentially trying to optimize for the last mile of their health. So uh, some of these folks were actually looking at improving their zone three performance and glucose is an interesting fuel for zone three. So they were looking at glucose uh, as a biomarker quite closely. Some of these folks were looking at HRV, uh, which was like obviously very, very common as a biomarker. Yeah. Uh, and of course, um, the basic ones as well, which is resting heart rate and uh, your heart rate zones and uh, your body temperature, et cetera. So what I realized was that uh, the data that we collect, uh, if we can make it more actionable, it's not just useful for athletes, but if we solve the right form factor, it's useful for everyone else as well. Uh, the athletes uh, have the problem of the last mile, so they really need to understand how to get to the last mile and optimize the last 5% or the last 1%, right. squeeze as much out. Uh, but for uh, for general people, for everybody trying to get healthy, uh, this is equally relevant because uh, people are still looking for the lowest hanging fruit of their health. And if you understand more about your body, uh, you could actually um, start get started with something that is uh, minor and very, very uh, incremental. And uh, once you start seeing results there, because it's so contextual to your health, uh, you will be motivated to take the next step as well. So that's how we understood the problem uh, back then, two and a half years ago. And what we started doing was we started integrating some of these biomarkers um, uh, together to understand more about the body. And that has been the vision from day one, that once uh, we integrate multiple biomarkers and help people interpret these biomarkers in the in the right way, uh, people would find what's right for them themselves, essentially, right? And um, uh, this sort of self-coaching, we found it to be extremely powerful because uh, this was driven by self-motivation 
this is driven by people who uh, actually want to make a change in their lives and and want yeah. to be sort of like very much uh, uh, like very much be uh, you can say uh, capable of controlling their own health in their own way because once somebody has this confidence that they themselves can change their own their own body and their own mind uh, in many ways they will be uh, they, they will actually have the ability to do it again in the future because it's a journey right so th- those are some of the thoughts uh, that we started with and uh, it's been two and a half years uh, we've shipped the product almost a year, year back uh, we started scaling almost seven eight months back now with uh, a few uh, thousand users essentially and around 150,000 people in the wait list so that's where the platform is okay okay awesome yeah I really like what you said about you know at the end of the day equipping people with the tools to make better decisions really in, in that actionable piece that um, like you said anyone could apply whether you're a professional athlete or the everyday athlete like like you and I um, we still have that same basic need to really improve our performance because you know as the everyday athlete we're trying to perform in other aspects of our life not just the physical training but that's a pathway kind of to being able to, you know, run your company better or, you know, be there for your family, et cetera. Absolutely. No, that's a great point. And there are, there are some examples where I, I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of convergence as well. Like for example, uh, interestingly, a few athletes that we dealt with in the earlier days, uh, some of them were ex- training extremely hard and they were in track sports, track and field sports, and their resting lactate levels would be extremely high. And you compare that to uh, a mildly inactive person and they would have the same resting lactate levels. And if both of them would actually feel similar after a day of workout, right? Yeah. So uh, can you really blame motivation in many cases? The Sometimes it's just biochemistry of the body as well, right? So I think this approach of individuality and personalization would actually make it much more inclusive for people. Yeah. And I would think it too, it equips you mentally, like you were saying a little bit earlier with some confidence that especially for the everydays or or folks that are just getting into their health to try and reclaim it, having this information to encourage you that, you know, you are making progress where you have the data because a lot of times, you know, it doesn't feel like it (laughs) and being able to draw that correlation between the two seems like a, a great way to, you know, maintain that health because we always end up with that new year's resolution issue yeah absolutely absolutely that's a great point that we have this uh, mega resolution every year and uh, um, because we can't really measure uh, i mean the human body takes a lot of time to change as you and i know uh, given that it's optimized for preservation in many ways Uh, so a lot of people don't cross that barrier of changing their body and obviously uh, it, it might just be that extra 10%, 20% that people need to put in. But because people don't see the incremental progress, they get demotivated and they sort of like fall back to doing nothing for the entire year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I was talking to a friend about this too, is like even when you're making progress, it still feels almost the same. Whether if you're lifting and you were lifting 10 pounds and now you're lifting 100 pounds, there's still that same physiological feel of like strain and stress, but you've obviously made progress. So being able to draw that correlation. Um, so in your, in your, you're able to use data to make actionable information. That's more practical. It sounds like, 
Um, was there something that you guys discovered that was an interesting correlation or something that was like a shocker to you guys to see this connection point that seemed not connected? So, um, but so the, the first one that really shocked me was the correlation between glucose variability and HRV, uh, which um, so glucose variability and heart rate variability um, trends being so strong uh, and specifically for me. So I've, I've seen this across maybe like 15 months or 16 months of data now that um, the, the, uh, the, my recovery state really determines what my glucose variability response is going to be. And um, uh, if I cross a certain threshold, then my average glucose also lifts. But then within the same threshold, uh, what I've seen is that uh, variability changes drastically uh, just, just on the base, uh, base of my HRV trend. So uh, really? it sort of like tells, tells me that. And I've seen this correlation with, with sleep as well, and specifically with deep sleep. So deep sleep affects my HRV in a much bigger way compared to REM sleep. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, this HRV decline, uh, this, uh, this sort of like downtrending HRV uh, also affects sort of like my glucose variability for the same type of food, uh, which basically means that if I'm able to see, uh, and, and, and now I've tested this hypothesis across like 15 to 20 people in my team and the folks I work with, uh, that if, if people are able to see 50 to 60% extra different, different level of variability, uh, for the same type of foods, then um, the state of rest actually drives as much, like probably as much about the insulin sensitivity as much as their food, uh, which is a big revelation for me. And um, what I've changed in my life accordingly is the fact that on the days I am not well rested, uh, I stay away from simple sugars, like pretty much like plague. Um, that that like basically this is the day to avoid simple sugars. Um, Hello, everyone. I am really excited to introduce uh, my sponsor, BioOptimizers. If you're not familiar with them, they make some of the highest quality grade supplemental products out there. Um, being my, uh, honestly, my first sponsorship, um, I didn't want to put anything out there that I didn't try, use, uh, or get behind. And um, I'm really excited that that they've just released their new and improved formula for magnesium breakthrough, which is the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. And if you know anything about magnesium, it's a critical mineral for our health and is a precursor to quality rest to help produce melatonin. And so using this new fourth generation formula, magnesium breakthrough, uh, it's potent, it's effective, and it will help reduce your stress, improve sleep, and overall boost your energy levels. So uh, I've already taken this, as I mentioned before, and you'll want to try this. I mean, it's it's uh, I've given a number of them out for free to friends, uh, and they've really enjoyed it. So if you've never tried it before, now's the time to do it. Uh, you can use the code REST10 at checkout. Again, REST, R-E-S-T. 10 at checkout in every bottle of magnesium you'll get seven unique form forms of organic full spectrum magnesium which is can dramatically improve your health as i mentioned it can help you sleep longer and deeper reduce your stress levels and help you feel calm and if you give 
give you abundant all-day energy to win at life. And as you know, that's ultimately in line with the vision of this podcast is to live this one life well to, through rest and recovery. And nothing uh, is going to help much more than magnesium breakthrough. So check it out. Again, rest 10, R-E-S-T 10. That's a great lesson on, you know, I never thought about that to completely um and the connection of food and recovery and nutrition and recovery and and tweaking it if you're under recovered so if you're feeling more drained you know reduce well sugar's not usually very good in any way but reducing your sugars or and increasing other aspects of your your i'll call it your your plate um to enhance the the recovery no, absolutely. I think uh, so. That was one big aspect, um, and it sort of felt like, can you actually? It sort of felt like it's a new dimension to rest and recovery in many ways. That can you iterate on your food to to actually change um, your patterns of rest and recovery? And before that, the only uh, underlying thesis that I understood about rest and recovery was that yeah, there are physical processes like you can go for a cold shower or you can essentially do a sauna cold alternate or you can basically do a recovery walk or run or you can do breathing exercises but there was nothing around food i mean the, the most food stuff essentially that was built around was around consuming more proteins and fats and healthy uh healthy complex carbs essentially but um it wasn't really as specific uh and actionable as uh i, I would like it to be so i think that was a huge change yeah and and it you know like you said the actionable is the key piece Right. Um, and I think that's where what I'm encouraged by what you're doing, too, is for the everyday athlete and for folks out there, you know, metabolic health is such a massive issue. Um, and many of the folks that need it are the ones that are struggling to get into it and being able to have that ability to track the things and, and see the growth um, for those who aren't you know, fully bought in just yet. I think will be an important aspect to to really transforming health in general. Absolutely, and if if you this is a great point that uh, it's not just for the athletes, right? And it is actually uh, uh, equally relevant for athletes as much as um, uh, for for every everyday health individual because uh, it's not just for performance, but of the health of the athlete. And this is a very understated uh, aspect of. Uh, you can say longevity, right? So if you look at the uh, performing athletes and their age today, uh, we have moved from almost 37 years of average retirement of an athlete to almost 42 years now. So there's a five-year increase over the last 30 years, So which basically means that athletes are training for longer, they're retiring much later, and they're able to perform for much, much, much longer, right? So this is an aspiration for a lot of athletes. And uh, what we've seen is that the concept of metabolic health, insulin sensitivity applies pretty much in the same way to, to athletes as well. Yes, they probably would have more muscle mass, so they don't have the metabolic muscle issue, uh, which a lot of unfit people would have. Mm -hmm. But then the, on the counter side, the problem is their fueling pattern. So a lot of these athletes are uh, fueling uh, very, very frequently and also fueling not probably with the right source of fuel. Um, some of that turns out to be corn sugar fructose or um, like just plain sugars as well. And uh, even though the glucose response is going to be controlled, uh, your glucose is going to be in the range, but then the glucose variability is pretty high. 
uh, as comparable to a uh, to, to to like an unfit individual so what we discovered was that when we did bunch of insulin studies with these athletes uh, and not specifically glucose because glucose can be masked to be honest by the state of your insulin in the body right Right. So uh, pretty much like Dr. Kraft's protocols. Uh, so if you've studied the Kraft protocol, you'd see that uh, if you drink like X grams of glucose uh, fasted, you'll see different types of glucose and you can measure insulin in accordance and you can basically plot what is the level of insulin sensitivity. Uh, sort of like a different version of Homa IR test. And we noticed that a lot of athletes who are in the early, like you can say mid twenties uh, have the same level of risk as a sedentary individual. Uh, wow. Really? Yeah, so that's all relates to because of the nutritional intake that they're having. Yeah. So it was, uh, to, to a large extent, what we noticed was that it was related to a, their state of stress. Uh, so some of the athletes were secreting, uh, almost 30 to 40% more insulin than uh, a regular, uh, unfit individual, which basically means that, uh, it wow. is going to leave them in a state where they have elevated levels of insulin always. Uh, and this was related to, uh, to some extent, their levels of stimulation. So they would train for seven, eight hours every day. Um, the other thing that we saw was that they were all putting in a lot of simple sugars during the workout. So um, they would consume somewhere close to around 20 to 25, um, you can say, uh, you can say bouts of uh, uh, sports drinks and fueling, uh, like if, uh, sports fuels, et cetera. And some of these were obviously not in the, not sourced the right way. Uh, didn't have the right sort of components. Uh, it would give them obviously like a great energy surge immediately because it was built for quick absorption. But right. the problem is that they're already insulin elevated. So uh, it's going to affect their health. And it's sort of like is a highly performing machine at the on the outside, but then on the inside, uh, there, there's a there's a large problem that's brewing. That is really fascinating to me that because, you know, you see, folks uh, that are the picture of health, the professional athletes, and you don't think that there's anything physically wrong with them in any way. Right. Uh, and that's really a great point on the whole, um, you know, the, I guess the iceberg effect and really understanding what's underneath the hood as much as the appearance and even looking the physique doesn't necessarily mean inside is, is working optimally. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great term, the iceberg effect. Uh, uh, what's uh, what's happening with your arteries and your uh, state of your inflammation in the body sometimes is disjoint from what's happening outside. And uh, uh, it's it's not to say that exercise doesn't work for people. Of course, for sure. If if people are inactive, <laughs> of course, exercise is the best way to get started. And uh, um, but but if if an athlete is looking to train much longer. Um, and sort of like train for longevity. Um, I think this is a great, this is one of the factors definitely that, that one can consider to look at their insulin and glucose. Yeah. What's your goal? What are you, what are you striving for? And I, I get to me, you know, and as much as I hate to admit it, the everyday athlete, it is longevity. It is the ability to kind of play with your kids and play with your grandkids or great grandkids. Um, you know, not necessarily when, you know, the two mile race or whatever you're participating in. Um, but you still want to push yourself. And, and to your point earlier, I want to go back, not advocating sit on your couch just because uh, it's the equivalent glucose response as, as a professional athlete, but 
more. There's that range of optimal health and, uh, and how to personalize it too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what are the key biomarkers that you guys are tracking? And so you have two devices though, correct? That's correct. We have the, the ring on the finger. Uh, so we love the finger form factor because uh, it get, gets us signals from the right, like very, very artery dense uh, network, or, uh, essentially from the part of the body. And then we have one on the, one on the arm, which is the patch you can see here. Okay. Uh, so these are the two sources. Uh, the patch is essentially a glucose monitor. And then we um, interpret the glucose data in a, in a way correlated with the data from the ring. And then, so you have a single dashboard. We're using the word correlation a lot. Are you able to, so is that how you're able to like use the sleep data along with the nutritional data? Yeah, absolutely. So we could identify things like which food affected your sleep and what kind of sleep, right? Um, and uh, food also means um, basically not just the macros, but also the timing of the food. Right. And also what you ate before you ate that food. So um, because uh, you're, like sometimes if you're fasted, uh, you'll have a gastric emptying effect. But if you're not fasted, uh, you'll have a much much more stable response. So uh, we really look at sort of like the you can say the mid range, if not the long range data uh, for an every uh, for for every day to understand like what has your insulin trend been like till this point in time, and uh, if a food has elevated your insulin levels and your glucose levels as well, um, what what what's actually the impact on sleep if the macros were xyz so this combination uh is really interesting because what we're discovering is uh food obviously affects people in very, very different ways because of our uh, stress patterns and our uh so in some cases our uh our speed of eating uh yeah. the way we uh, prepare food so that's why macros uh even though they are extremely powerful uh to understand uh how to like basically uh basically limit mac optimize your uh, food intake etc but then they're limited by the fact that if pre people prepare them in different ways it's sort of like it's a different food um yep. and uh, a stir fry is different from deep fried is different from a uh, baked so th th that's what it is and uh, that's yeah. what do that yeah that that's a really good point and it, it's amazing how um just a little change in the timing or portion could, could really, you know, improve one's health. Um, kind of to your point in that, you know, you want to have the right ratio of the macros. Um, but if you're off, it could have a bad effect or if, if it's on point, a, a really positive one. Um, so that's a, it's an interesting point too, on, on the when as much as the what. No, absolutely. And if, if we were all training very, very hard and recovering very well, then I don't think any of these things would be required. But the reality is that uh, most people don't train three times per week. Um, yeah. and most people don't like essentially pay attention to their nutrition. So, um, and they have a lifestyle. They have a certain type of lifestyle. So if you can change the lifestyle, um, it's it's actually going to be much more lasting. Um bunch of users I think that we have seen make long-term changes to their health have done like very, very simple, very, very simple things in their health. So they'll walk after their meals. They will add a bowl of vegetables before they eat anything uh, so to up their, uh, their fiber count. And they'll add a little bit of protein, like more. So maybe 
if they were consuming 60 70 grams per day they'd get it to like close to 100 grams um which is pretty recent so just with these three things i think people have been actually seeing a lot of a lot of changes in their own uh, like in their own body and yeah um, not to say that this is for everyone but then basically it's it, it sort of like works for a lot of people yeah and i think the, the the encouraging point on that is you don't have to necessarily stop you may need to reduce on certain things like if you favor a certain thing a food item but it turns out it's not really working with your system well you know uh, you can adjust it probably to just a smaller amount a smaller dose as opposed to having to kind of just get rid of and cut out something out of your diet uh, especially if it's something you enjoy yeah absolutely no that's a great point because we we don't want people to move from um, an unhealthy state where they have uh, elevated levels of uh, dopamine intake to uh, to a similarly unhealthy state because changing the body takes time, but then the dopamine also goes away. So this is like a miserable state, right? Which is uh, the body hasn't seen the impact, but then you're eating food that is not tasty. So uh, right. this is the this is the zone to avoid, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't, we got to come up with a name for that because that's, to me, I, I just equate it back to the New Year's resolution uh, issue that people go from, you know, zero to 60. They, they're not in the gym and then they're going five days a week and your, your body can't take that. It's not used to that. And it, it, although it may seem initially the right thing to do, pacing yourself would be the, more optimal approach. Cause it is, again, what's the goal longevity. It's not to win the MMA fight <laughs> or the 5k or the, you know, the Olympics it's to be healthy and vibrant, um, as much as you can every day. That's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, platform marketing is built around aspirations. So, which is straight train like this athlete or the other athlete, but then uh, what people really need to do is actually start with basics and just stick to it, right? Uh, and yeah. this is, interestingly, this is what a lot of athletes also follow. So uh, what what I observed in the uh, in the uh, MMA camp where I was training is the fact that a lot of um, a lot of professional athletes would train in a very, 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 very boring way. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and I, I used to actually think that uh, going all the way in terms of when you're sparring is actually a great way because then you can train for intensity. And uh, I, I, I was taught by uh, uh, a, 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 actually a former athlete now uh, who's telling me that uh, if you don't spar for 95% of your time, then you can't go in density. And, uh, and I was like, why would you say that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's like sparring is your muscle memory and intensity is only short term. Mm -hmm. If you don't have muscle memory, you don't know how to push and you'll push the wrong way. So that was, and a lot of these athletes actually train very, very low intensity, um, avoid injury, like, like anything. And so sort of like focus on the technique, focus on enjoying and going through the process and like getting into the, the vibe with, with the place, et cetera. Then actually, uh, they obviously do the high intensity stuff as well, but right. then that's like the 5%. And when they do it, they actually go two X, three X harder. But then that's like five percent, and and uh, to to the name of your podcast, the rest in recovery is sort of uh, key to key to uh, understanding the balance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that that balance is is important in being able to uh, acknowledge the rest 
or even like you said, the kind of the slow boil piece, just like the low intensity, um, slow motion, I guess, of, for you, it was MMA, uh, Muay Thai, I think you said, is just understanding the movements in almost slow motion, uh, versus like just going out and grappling right away. Um, I'm a runner, so I can relate the correlation to that would be what's called the Maffetone method. Uh, the 80% of your training is <clears throat> this slow, easy jog, almost like conversation pace. And, um, uh, I'm convinced that this saying I've come up with is success is boring is, is about spot on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great, I mean, it's, it's visible across different sports. Um, yeah. how, how low intensity, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed by what, uh, uh for example, David Sinclair says about longevity mm -hmm. that uh, you need to be pulsing between, dif between different zones, which is, um, you, you're either pushing too hard, um, yeah. while sprinting on certain days, or maybe five days a month, um, lifting extremely hard three days a month, extremely hard and three days a month. And then rest of the month you are sort of like uh working out at a conversational pace mm -hmm. uh, which is the other extreme um yep. and and a mix of these three is what essentially you're pulsing between different states and that is what actually uh ensures that you, you sort of like have good level of adaptability in your body yeah and, and i think at the end of the day you know that's where the mental emotional aspects come in of creating that adaptability and being able to, you know, back to the beginning of the conversation with the data and the dashboard to be able to show your progress is to build that mental resilience to keep going and know that you're going forward. Absolutely. So um, where are you guys based out of right now for, for services? I know you're based out of Bangalore, right? Yeah. Bangalore. Yeah. So we, uh, we, we are focused on the uh, GCC, the Gulf, and the India market right now. Okay. And we should be launching in the U.S. market somewhere around next year. Okay. Um, oh, awesome. So these, yeah. So these are largely our focus markets. And uh, I think um, uh, we have two offices right now, one in Bangalore and one in uh, one in Abu Dhabi. So, uh, and some of us obviously also work remotely. So it's sort of like hybrid okay. uh, in many ways. Uh, and... Um, and yeah, I think we every region is a different challenge. It's a different uh, cultural challenge uh, in terms of how people live their lives and uh, what's how, how how do people consume their food and like move around. Yeah. Even like you can say environmental challenges also like basically different weather, different type of pollution levels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like uh, you know there are. Uh, India is notoriously known for certain cities that are very very high level of air pollution. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, whenever I'm in, let's say for example, Delhi, in this case, I I do consciously uh, track my biomarkers, and I see that just with the same lifestyle, the biomarkers are much worse. It's it's just compounded. Really? Yeah, it's air pollution. So my glucose variability uh, shoots up by like 30, 40 percent. And I'm eating the same food. I'm eating, I'm working out the same way. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of resting lag because I've, I would have traveled. But then that even after like a week, uh, it's the same level of new baseline uh, of, of glucose variability. So yeah, it, it's, and it's, uh, it's, you can call it a passive killer, but I don't think anything that can be more active than 
your air pollution or water pollution yeah i mean air is the number one thing we need above everything else um so and, and that that's a really interesting i hadn't thought of it that way i mean i guess yeah i hadn't really fully thought of environmentals completely i mean i have but not in that context um i was thinking about the the fact that you know i'm us based and you're international but drawing that uh, basically I was in a conversation or a training, I'm doing a FDMP. That's a certification for nutritional stuff. And, um, talking a lot about, uh, ancestral diets, but it, it turns out to, okay, which ancestral diet are you going to apply? Because depending on where you're from, um, Europe or India or, you know, Sweden, that ancestral diet is going to be different. And so understanding, you know, the correlation of where you're from um, and what you eat and how your body responds um, would be interesting data to correlate between the different countries and locations uh, based on the diet piece of it too. No, absolutely. I think that that'll be a fun one to watch because uh, we can potentially with, you can say if you map out uh, you can say 10 different types of cultures and understand what are some of the best things in each type of cultures in terms of metabolizing a certain type of macro? Yeah. Um, I think that would be uh, a great study to do because uh, what we've been seeing in fragments is that there are certain regions uh, uh, that actually do great with actually carb intake. So, and, and for them, by the way, carb is not a problem because they're fairly active and they do have a different type of microbiome as well. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can leverage with computing and health in the next five to 10 years. It's, uh, it's, it's actually going to see a very, very different era. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how Moore's law affects this and how quick we can get there. Cause it feels like it, you know, there's been discussions on some of these things for a long time. Uh, and we're just starting to see a lot more around the microbiome conversation. And I just heard recently that they're seeing other microbiomes and other aspects like different, I'll call it solar systems of microbiome within your body, uh, not just your gut, but you have one that's different that's in your mouth, but they connect, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then I just saw something posted on LinkedIn from a previous uh, guest in regards to microbiome in the spine and in the vertebrae um, aspects. So it's kind of interesting to see where all that goes. Oh, that's really cool because I think, so this is still very controversial, but I think, um, it's, I think there are two, two aspects to evolution in this industry, right? One is that, uh, there's an advocacy view, which is that if you, uh, and th that is, I think in my opinion, that's been a big problem for this industry that if, I, I, if I'm saying a paleo diet and somebody says a keto diet and we have to be enemies. We have to right. not believe in each other, right? Right. Um, and, and that's not that's not. I mean, that shouldn't be the case because it's a, it is a different view to look at health, and uh, these are different tools. Um, whereas, if we could, uh, just like with microbiome, there is a strong objection that a lot of people have that oh, uh, this is pseudoscience and this doesn't work, uh, and and there, there are exceptions and loopholes in the studies. Uh, and similarly, a lot of people do believe, and they say that, like, essentially, what everybody everybody else is saying is actually BS and doesn't make sense. 
And the problem is actually with both, which is like, how do we accept criticism and how do we actually uh, avoid cynicism, right? In this case. Yeah. Um, and uh, especially with microbiome, I think what's what's going to happen is that today it is at a very, interestingly, at a very macro level, we know that it does affect our health. Um, we, we know that by looking at um, the compositions of different foods and um, like if, if a food is basically non-probiotic in many ways, it does he- affect health negatively. We know that preservatives have a very detrimental effect on the body as well uh, because of their ability to inhibit microbiome uh, uh, microbiota in the body. But uh, I think a lot of longitudinal studies need to be done in terms yeah. of uh, to, be underst- to, to understand this. And I think till that time, we people broadly know that uh, what are some of the best ways to actually work on your microbiome ecosystem at a very broad level. So I think a lot of people are going to experiment, self-experiment on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as the data arrives, I think the experiments are going to become much more specific. Yeah, and I think it's a great point on, you know, it's not necessarily either or, but it's a continuum or it's more maybe a good, better, best of what's better for me may not be better for you. Like you and I could eat the same food and I could respond poorly and you could respond with energy. Um, you know, I know for my family, I've used this a couple of times in conversations, but I have a daughter who has uh, peanut and egg allergy. Both of those are considered some of the best proteins you can consume yet for her, it can potentially, you know, kill her. Right. Yeah. So it's like, how do you deal with this dichotomy of truth? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the human body is, as, as we know, like way more complex than, um, than yeah. when, when, and our lifestyles are also complex. Like a lot of people, uh, the problem is that it, the same, like f- for me, if I'm consuming the same type of diet, if I'm resting and if I'm active, it doesn't work because I need a different type of protocol, different type of food types. Um, a lot of, I, I spoke to a recovering athlete and the athlete had put on like 30% extra of their own body weight over the last five years. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, one of the things they were saying was that my activity levels are different compared to where I was, uh, but my food has remained pretty much the same. So that's not going to work because your if your metabolism slows down and your activity levels are different, uh, it does have to adapt and change along with time. So I think those are some of the things that I think we are, we are going to see uh, come out in a very, very precise way over the next few years. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, you know, personal anecdote, I noticed that the other day where I was, I'm training for a half marathon and, um, I just felt exhausted the other day after a run. And I just realized I had not been consuming, you know, the proper amount of food. It was pretty low, even on a regular day, let alone doing that kind of exertion, uh, and just felt flat. And so I think it's a good example that we have to draw that correlation um, or causation correlation of, you know, what we're doing and how we feel and then what we ate. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to become really interesting for the next few years in terms of how we collect data from all the different devices. Um, and so I'm really interested in adding newer biomarkers to the mix as well, like lactates and ketones and, yeah. Um, alcohol, all of these, right. So, uh, to understand really like how, as in the chase of this Holy grail biomarker, mm-hmm. how do we actually figure out different layers of your health pretty much like an onion. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, that's, 
Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Especially on ketones. That's like the new term I keep hearing exogenous ketones and, and cons- being able to consume them. I don't know if you're familiar with those or not. Um, had a couple interviews with a couple companies that are um, offering ketones that you can actually consume um, to have that same ketogenic effect. Uh, so it'll definitely be interesting to see the different biomarkers and being able to like, expand. But uh, at the end of the day, like you said, making that actionable though, which is the most important thing. Yeah, it's quite magical to see. Uh, I think, especially for me, I think the, the most magical experience was to see my ketones level, ketone levels rise uh, while fasting. So that uh, even though like fasting was not that hard, given I had fasted for for a long time earlier. Uh, I mean, max I can do is three days. Um, so I, I don't fast much, but uh, I had done it many number of times yeah. uh, earlier. Um but then when I started seeing uh, ketone level, levels rise after like a 15-hour period, I realized that, oh, this is my sweet spot in terms of uh, getting the ketones to work. So that was really, really magical in many, many ways. And the next time I did it, actually, I, I got it like in 12 hours. The third time I did it, it took like 23 hours. So all different because my uh, glycogen levels were different. My state of, the state of uh, stress was different. My sleep levels were different. Um, all of those things. That's awesome. That's a great example too. Um, so Mohit, so what, um, where are you guys looking to go next as you evolve? So I think a few things. One is of course, from a geographical expansion perspective, we'll be in the U S next year. Uh, this year we're focused on the India and GCC region, um, from a hardware expansion perspective, biomarker expansion perspective. Uh, we we have access to recovery, sleep, biomarkers, along with glucose. And uh, in the next few months, uh, we should be rolling out lactate ketones, alcohol, all of these. And there's a there's a new biomarker that we're testing out as well. So we, we should be able to think, uh, we should be able to talk more about it, I think, in the next few months uh, to understand more about like uh, deeper aspects of your, especially your metabolism. Uh, but interestingly, metabolism is related to many, many other physiological processes. Mm-hmm. So that's what our journey is going to be. I think what you've seen is that once somebody starts looking at one biomarker, uh, they're naturally curious about the next one. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and then the third one. So I think for us, the evolution pretty much looks like enrich the existing one and then add more and more and more layers to uh, to discover about your own, own health. Because if you start using a glucose biomarker, you pretty much uh, get a pretty good idea like in the, in the next six months, seven months. And then of course your body changes. Right, and then you need it the next year. Um, but then, if you add ketones on top, it becomes like much more interesting. And then you add lactates on top. Like while you're training, it's a game changer. And when you add, I mean, I mean, I like alcohol as a biomarker. It's really fun to see. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's fun to see while you're drinking uh, <laughs> to understand like what is the right optimal level uh, uh, to to basically and and there actually it's really interesting that different people have different levels of alcohol rate of alcohol metabolization and uh, you can really drink up to the level where your liver is actually able to keep up to it so all those thresholds could be calculated yeah that is really interesting especially you know being able to find like you said that sweet spot where you're not going to have terrible sleep you know knowing when to stop knowing how much to consume even the type that you may consume uh, right. so much of it is sugar based yeah 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 also the right pace. So uh, yeah. 
I mean, what's the right level of dilution, the pace? Uh, those are going to be like really, really cool interventions because people are not, I mean, a lot of people have obviously, when people are proactive about their health, they will consider alcohol as something to avoid, but a lot of people would still indulge in a, in a, in a drink a few times yeah. per month or... Yeah, I mean, culturally, it's such a, a major thing, especially in the U.S., I think, um, that it's such a, a core cultural component. Um, but again, it turns into moderation, like what's the right, we're not saying don't necessarily, but maybe don't have as much, right, or stop sooner or whatever the or might be that's going to fit you, the individual. Absolutely. Moderation is the key. Well, that would be fun to see. Um, well, Mohit, I, I want to thank you for your time. I'm really interested to see where you guys go because you have a couple different wearables operating under one umbrella where, you know, a lot of the other companies out there are just are single threaded, uh, not good or bad per se, but just the ability to, to draw all that into a single dashboard. And, and like you said, evolve the correlation and causation to really equip people with more actionable information. So look forward to seeing where you go for that. Um, I like to close things out with a couple personal questions, nothing too heavy, but uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, I was actually reading the Alumnac, uh, Neville Ravikant's Alumnac uh, uh, very recently. I think I'm pretty much at the end. Uh, so okay. I should be, yeah. And there's a book called Prisoners of Geography, which I'm sort of like, we've started reading in parallel. So yeah, these are the two ones. Cool. So what are you listening to right now, be it music or podcast? Yeah, so I, I, interest, I don't listen to too much, but I think uh, I do like listening to uh, Dr. Huberman yeah. um, um, in this space. And uh, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, that, that would be the current focus. Uh, and Huberman and Rhonda Patrick and uh, Sinclair's uh, longevity podcast. I think these are the three. Okay. Uh, yeah. All great, great ones. I, I love the Huberman podcast. Um, all right. Last one. What is your go-to rest and recovery method? That's a really interesting question. So I have really enjoyed, um, uh, the, the flip between, uh, sauna and cryo. Uh, okay. Like if you, yeah, if you do, especially like if you do five of these back to back, uh, so I used to do cold and sauna, which was like, gives you like a crazy buzz because <laughs> you're just flipping and body doesn't know what the hell is happening. Yeah. Uh, but then when you take it to cryo minus 120 degrees and then to sauna and then cryo like five times, I think uh, that that has been the, the fastest I've ever recovered, I think, um, after a heavy workout. Wow. That's awesome. I'm going to have to give that a go. I think, I don't know about the cryo part, but no, I did, I did record that on the CGM and yeah. uh, my ring, etc. everything as well. I realized that what happened was that I just went into a, a parasympathetic state for a long, long time, like for the next 48 hours because of this, this response. Wow. Uh, and you went back and forth. So how long did you go in each, um, each cryo was three minutes. Okay. Each, uh, Sauna was around seven, eight minutes. So 10 minutes one side, and then maybe like uh, you can say switch over a time of 30 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And you did that five times? 
Yeah, so I it almost took like an hour to finish the entire protocol. Sure. Uh, but yeah, then uh, I think I did a super hard workout, did this, and then I was ready in the next five hours, like just to like go again. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's super cool. I, I, I don't know whether that's safe or not. So I still have to evaluate for safety. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, not suggesting crazy. it, right? Yeah. Check with your health yeah. professional before you try any of these things. But Absolutely. yeah. That that's great. Well, Mohit, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate, uh, getting to know you. And uh, I love the fact that, you know, I'm on the East coast of the United States and you're over season in India and, and be able to connect and have this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate you taking time out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Rest and Recovery Podcast. Please share this information far and wide. Rate, review, would appreciate all of the support. uh, And thank you so much for listening. Uh, You can also check out episodes on any of your favorite podcast platforms, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Or you can check out the website at www.berestedbewell.com. Thanks and have a great day.